The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. From our studios in Chattanooga, Tennessee, USA, welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, now heard in over 100 countries around the world. Glad you are here. This is the show where we chat with the world's most brilliant thinkers and experts about transforming your workplaces and growing your business through the powerhouse business principles of love and care. Love in action in the context of today's episode is about compassion. And you know, compassion is a topic that makes a lot of business people nervous. Is there a place for compassion in the harsh, hyper-competitive global economy? That's why finding a compassionate leader can be so rare. And working within a compassionate organizational culture even more so. So, you know, over the years, as I've read up on on the research on compassion and, and how it truly benefits organizations, a handful of global experts and scholars in the field keeps popping up. Well, we are blessed to have one of them join us today. Dr. Monica Warline is the co-author of Awakening Compassion at Work, The Quiet Power That Elevates People and Organizations. This book, I will have you know, is a groundbreaking practical guide that's firmly planted in 15 years of research. And Monica and her co-author, Jane E. Dutton, make the case for compassion in the workplace, both interpersonally and systemically. And they offer a clear blueprint for how to do it. And she's going to share some of those things with us. So who is Dr. Monica Warline? She is the founder and CEO of Enlivened Work, an organization that teaches businesses how to use compassionate leadership to humanize and energize the work that they do. And man, we need more of that today. She is also a research scientist at Stanford University's Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. And she is the executive director of Compassion Lab, the world's leading research collaboratory. I love that word, collaboratory, focused on what else? Compassion in the workplace. And Monica also lectures at University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. Thrilled to have you join us, Monica. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So we have a tradition on the show before we get into your book, your work, and you know what you do, and that is a, a gratitude moment. So what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? Mm, well, I am blessed to live in... California where spring is already well on its way and one thing that makes me smile every day is just figuring out which new flower has bloomed Mm. in my flower garden and um, right now especially with so much emphasis on virus and illness and um, I think the the signs of spring that nature gives us are actually metaphorically Um, helpful. So they make me smile double these days. That's really interesting. I'm in Chattanooga and uh, spring is in the air, but unfortunately, pollen is also in the air. (laughs) (laughs) So we are breathing this this crud (laughs) that even though it's beautiful and gorgeous outside, we're spending half our time coughing our brains out. (laughs) (laughs) So Monica, people often think compassion. Well, let me backtrack a little bit. As far as how you got involved, walk us through a little bit of your background uh, and let's get acquainted with, with, with your work and especially what got you so interested in, in compassion in the workplace. Yeah, thanks. I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan doing a PhD in organizational psychology and I was invited to participate in 
program doing the first research that we could find published in the organizational sciences about compassion at work. The impetus for that research project was a couple of senior faculty members, including my co-author Jane, had had traumatic events or serious illnesses in their lives and had noticed that their universities responded very differently to them. So, you know, in the, within the university industry sector, the response to difficult life events was quite varied. And I think that I was drawn to the research project from my own biography because I grew up in a very small town in the rural western United States and compassion in our community was pretty much a taken for granted of my life. So when I had a close family member who passed away as a child, I remember that people just started showing up at our door with food or flowers or um, papers to sign or whatever was needed to handle the situation. And we were always hearing through different parts of our community about people in need and, you know, baking cakes or delivering um, something that needed to be delivered. And that um, I realized growing up and moving away from my small town home base isn't everyone's day-to-day -day reality. But it's such a strength of living in a strong community. I think that kind of compassion really got baked into me as a young person. That's interesting. You know, when I think of compassion, and so many people maybe have a misconception of, of what it is, we hear often the, the, the saying, oh, he felt compassion for her, or, you know, we felt compassion mm. for these people, etc. And we attach it to a feeling or an emotion. Uh, yeah. And other people maybe mistake it for empathy or even kindness. So dispel the rumors, the myths, the, the, the false ideas from, you know, from what it truly is. What's, what's the core idea behind it? Yeah. Well, we'll probably dispel a bunch of myths over the course of our conversation. <laughs> I hope that's true. But let's start with the first definitional misunderstanding. Compassion, the way we study it from a social science point of view, is a four-part human experience, and it always unfolds in relation to pain or suffering of some kind. So in response to pain, we have to notice that's pain. That's part one. We have to interpret it as worth our time and attention and action. That's two. We have to feel empathy. That's three. And then we have to take action of some sort to alleviate or address the suffering. That's four. So as you can see, within that definition, a certain kind of empathic concern is a part of that process. Um, but empathy as a whole thing is much bigger than just compassion, right? So empathy from a social science point of view can actually mean about eight or nine different things. And it can simply mean that I can put myself in your shoes and understand your point of view. That's sort of a perspective taking style of empathy, which can be helpful when you come to a time in your life that you're struggling or something difficult happens, because if I already understand your point of view, I may then be more likely to feel concerned about you and then go through those four steps of noticing, interpreting it as worth my time or uh, something that matters to me, um, feeling for you and then acting in some way. And you can imagine that this could be mistaken for kindness. Um, but again, kindness can unfold in many different kinds of situations that don't necessarily involve suffering. So the key differentiator, kindness is normally defined as a voluntary activity that supports the flourishing of another person. Right? And it, presence or absence of suffering is not essential to the definition of kindness. Mm. So what I get from this is that you got the the fourth step is crucial because without alleviating the suffering of someone else, that you can't have the full definition of compassion until you remove the boulder off someone's shoulder, so to speak. That's so true, and it's also one of the traps or or one of the myths about compassion that is part of what makes compassion a complex and interesting topic. So you can study it for twenty five years, right? <laughs> um, we think that 
we must be able to fully alleviate someone else's suffering in order for our compassion to be worthwhile. And it's one of the myths that holds us back from acting in the first place. And mm. What our research has revealed is that often some addressing and um, validating and recognizing the suffering that someone's going through can be a compassionate act that's enough in and of itself even if there's no way that you can fully take away that suffering. And that's quite often true. You know, in cases where someone has experienced a death, for instance, you can't resurrect the person who died, right? You, that's not within any of our human powers that we know of right now. So what we can do is acknowledge the loss and listen to the person, ask for the memories of the person who has died, and um, make clear that through our presence and through our willingness to be with them, that they are less alone than they might feel in the moment. Hmm. So obviously here we are about uh, well, 51 days into the pandemic. Yes. Obviously compassion. I've, I read stories. I know compassion has increased during this, this horrible time we're in. Speak to what you're seeing now. How are people responding with compassion? I think that is one of the wonderful aspects of silver linings of human crises is that it also pulls the cover off of all of the responsiveness that's built into humans' capacity to handle suffering. So in a time like this pandemic, we see this immense amount of suffering going on around us. And we also have a window into people who are volunteering their time for helping their neighbors and their friends, people who are raising money and finding all around the globe protective equipment for the care workers and the essential workers in their environments and so on. And so it is a time when it's more culturally sanctioned and culturally appropriate and culturally visible to us that whenever suffering arises around us, there's also this human impulse to go toward that suffering and to help address it. And that is part of what researchers have uncovered about compassion that's so interesting in the past 20 years is that we have an impulse to turn toward people who are in pain that we can map from infancy. And so we have, a, as a part of being a cultural creature, we have the capacity to um, be with others who are suffering or who are in pain. And we actually have an innate or um, ready instinct to do that within our human nature. We often unlearn it, right? We unlearn it from institutions that tell us not to pay attention, or we unlearn it from family structures that get that pass along all the biases that we're subject to as human beings. And so some people or some institutions are more worthy of our time and attention than others. But the crisis as a leveler takes us back to the fact that it, we do have the capacity to be with other people who are in pain. And in fact, it's beneficial to us and helpful to us when we get to do that. Yeah, we'll talk about the benefits in a minute, but let's bring this, this idea of human suffering to the workplace. And you have tracked the data on human suffering for years in, in the workplace. What, what are some typical examples of the kinds of sufferings that we've seen historically in, in organizations and still up to this day? You and I were saying, even after we get back to a post-COVID-19 uh, time, we're probably going to continue to see these things happen. Yes, absolutely. So uh, we tend to talk about this, for, for simplification purposes, I think it's helpful to talk about two buckets of kinds of pain that matter in workplaces. And the first bucket is the kind that we've been giving examples of so far. It's um, illnesses or injuries or the deaths of loved ones or um, divorces or separations, other kinds of things that happen in the course of our daily lives that cause us pain or create trauma. And 
then that trauma and that pain comes with us into the workplace when we enter. And depending on the scale of the suffering, we may try to not bring it with us to work, but it may leak in. And so that's the form of suffering that when people hear the word compassion, I think they think of most often. The other form that we have studied and that is also really prevalent around us right now and important to pay attention to as suffering is the kind of pain or distress that's created by organizations themselves in the course of doing work. So um, right now, of course, furloughs and layoffs are a big topic of conversation and so many people are in a form of financial distress that creates suffering in their lives. And that's as a part of being separated from work that matters to them and works that help, work that helps make their life function. Um, there's also massive changes in the workplace that create pain and suffering for the people who have to live through them. Sometimes there's just the pain of having a high standards and an aspirational goal and a go-for-it culture, and everyone is making sacrifices in order to be a part of that culture, and they're willingly doing so, but it does create distress in their lives in order to do that. And part of what we help leaders understand is that by virtue of being a great leader, you're going to create suffering in your people. Right? If you're calling them to a higher aspiration, if you're helping them enact a big change, you're creating suffering and it's normal and it's important to have a mechanism of helping to address and heal that suffering as you go. That's how you get sustainably great performance. Wow. So this is probably one of those questions where it's a common sense question. Okay. We know the benefit. Well, we're going to get into the benefits in a minute here, but you've already touched on so many things that would make us want to, um, want to build a more compassionate culture, but why don't we see more of it at work? What's holding us back? Well, I think there's, let's just, can I just talk like a scholar for a second? <laughs> yeah. Now, she's about to geek Can't out on. <laughs> One thing that I, re- I think we have to squarely address when we use the word compassion, and the reason I say can I talk like a scholar is because we've measured this, other people have measured this, and we know it's just a reality of perception that by virtue of using the word compassion, I have made my work seem relevant to about 80% of the women of the world. And I have made it seem less relevant to the men of the world, which is a cultural and um, kind of normative bias built into the perception of that word. But it belongs in connotation with words like nurturing and care. And I love that you are demystifying those words and making it clear that they're relevant to everyone in business and in other kinds of organizations, right? Whether we think we're in the business of nurturing and caregiving or not, right? Whatever business we're in. But we have to tackle the bias at the beginning. So one of the things that holds us back from seeing more compassion and talking about more compassion in work is just that We think that compassion is women's work. We think that it's associated with caregiving tasks only. So maybe it's appropriate for hospitals, but it's certainly not appropriate for technology companies, you know, or retail firms or whatever business we might happen to be in. And then I think we also fall prey to the myth that compassion means you're weak and you're soft and you're going to get walked all over and taken advantage of. And that is one of the personal kind of fears and myths that holds leaders back from embracing that word and making it a part of what they're really striving for. Yeah. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the cost of not only leaders or managers that lack a, a more compassionate approach, but also organizations lacking compassion there's there's long-term emotional cost and also a financial financial cost you want to unpack that for us yeah so the um the lack of compassion 
in workplaces is probably one of the big unmeasured costs that someone could do a really brilliant dissertation about if they wanted to. But there have been ways of trying to estimate. So um, the Grief Institute, for example, did an estimate a number of years ago about the lack of mechanisms for helping people address grief in the workplace, just kind of one form of suffering. Um, and they came up with a number in the billions of dollars. And then another way we might estimate costs associated with pain and suffering that some people use is to tap into the cost of absenteeism, which is a byproduct of unaddressed suffering in workplaces often, or the cost of healthcare claims like um, stress-related uh, illness or back pain or other forms of um, health, seeking health care where the illness comes in part from dealing with difficult workplace circumstances. So if you just think of those as partial indicators and add them all up, we're talking about billions and billions and billions of dollars every month. I can attest to that because uh, back in 2005, I worked under um, a, a toxic management structure. The stress was unbelievable. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, backs. Well, you know, all of the cortisol flowing through my body uh, when the ER doc, well, let me backtrack. So I ended up, um, I ended up uh, going to the ER because the stress got to my back and my back went out one morning. I stepped out of the shower and bam, straight down, face down, couldn't move. Yeah. Um, I had to crawl to my phone, which took about 45 minutes <laughs> and ended up in ER. Anyway, so long story short, um, the ER doc asked me, what, you know, on the scale of one to 10, what's your stress level like at work? I said about a 25. And, and, uh, and so that ended up a, being a two-month um, uh, period of disability at work. So not only was I out, which affected me emotionally and uh, it affected the organization as well as far as healthcare costs go. So, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm living example of what you just said about the cost. So yeah. let's talk about the benefit. Um, there's obviously a business benefit. Um, I'm sure there's also an emotional benefit as well, an individual benefit. So talk about why is it a smart choice to create a culture of compassion? Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that story. First of all, before I jump right into the benefits, <laughs> it's a powerful story. And so many people have stories like that one where the stress and the difficulty of work creates, you know, circumstances that then affect their whole lives. So yeah. I could turn the tables on you and say, was there anyone in your life who responded compassionately when you had that episode? Absolutely. And his, you know, he was sort of that, um, that, that one person while the world around me was falling apart there was, he was, you know, Gallup talks about, you know, you have to have a best friend at work. Well, he, he was my quote, best friend. He's not in a personal sense, but at work, he was right. somebody that I could lean on and, 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 and express my feelings safely. Uh, Cause I couldn't do it with anyone else. It was, you know, it was toxic. It was fear-based. Yeah. So um, yeah. his name is Paul. And Paul was that one person that uh, was sort of a, you know, um, a, a place of, of, he provided me a space for peace and a way for me to help recover. Yeah. Well, thank you to the Pauls of the world who do <laughs> that work. That is compassion work in the workplace. It's often what it looks like. Um, one, one of our colleagues who has passed away now, but who started this line of work in in um, academic circles is Peter Frost, and he wrote a book called Toxic Emotion at Work. And he named this role that people like Paul play as a toxin handler. And um, in almost any toxic work environment, you will be able to seek out the little safe spaces, right? And the little safe spaces are often people who have some kind of 
um, social skill and emotional skill. And they, for whatever reason at that moment in their life, also have the equanimity or the stability to um, hold the toxins and provide safe harbor for other people that are living through that, that distressing work time. And that's a role that is mostly unacknowledged in workplaces. It's mostly uncompensated. It sometimes can become quite costly if people occupy that role too often. They, they start taking on the stress and the difficulty of others to a degree that becomes unhealthy for them. But that is one academic response to the kind of situation you're sharing with us where people have tried to study as workplaces create these toxic environments, what helps people get through in the short term? And then what are changes we can make in the longer term and the bigger structure to keep the toxicity from building to the degree that you're describing? So the benefits of doing all that stuff, which we're going to get into later down the road, are that, you know, A, you aren't putting people in the position of having to choose between I either live a sane life or I work in my job. So you're giving people reasons to stay in your organization. And in fact, when people perceive that it's a more compassionate work environment, they become more committed to the organization. So it's not just that you're not driving them out. You're actually building commitment that keeps people and that makes it likely that you can retain the talented people that you need to do the work that you're doing. And before the pandemic, we were living in a real labor shortage. And um, it was really important for organizations to have scalable ways to ensure that they could keep really talented people to do the work that they needed them to do. So commitment and retention is one big benefit of building a more compassionate culture. If you are in an innovation line of work, and if you depend on creating new ideas and bringing them to market for anything that happens in your organization, then having a more compassionate culture is essential because by virtue of being an innovation company, you're asking people to try new things and you're asking them to fail at those things and then learn from that failure and try again until they get a solid solution. And we talk about um, fail fast in order to innovate faster, but we forget that failing feels really sucky to human beings, right? right? No one likes to fail, even if they know they're doing it in the service of a great experiment or as a scientist, you know, they're, they're in search of the, the virus, that, the vaccine that will um, bring us all back out of our shelter-in-place orders. Failing at that seems like the worst thing ever, even if it's necessary to the progression of our work. And so we need compassion around us to handle the difficulties of failing and make it safer for people to keep trying right? and to get back up and to go on in innovative companies. So um, building a more innovative company and being more adaptable to change is another big benefit of building a compassionate culture. Love that. It links to innovation, managing change, engagement, retention. Um, wow. So we got a lot of leaders on the call. And so a, a simple question would be, well, you know, if, if I want to um, use this approach so that I can raise my engagement scores or I can uh, retain people at a higher level and, uh, you know, be able to manage change more effectively, how do we, how do we lead with compassion? Well, we talk about two ways of thinking about this as a leader. The first one is... you the question you asked, leading with compassion. So one way of doing this is to seek out a little bit of feedback about whether or not you're perceived as a compassionate leader already. It's not something that most leaders are going around asking people about. So um, you might be perceived as a really scary leader and not really be tuned into that about yourself. You might think you're being very compassionate as a leader and other people are not seeing it. 
I know that I saw some survey results recently from a Compassion Leadership Institute that showed that 80% of the leaders who responded to their survey thought they were doing a good job on compassion, and only 40% of the employees thought so. So there's a perception gap. Um, that's one way to sort of try to tune into how other people see you in this space of handling pain and suffering and responding to difficulty. Build some self-awareness, and that helps you adapt what you're doing so that other people can actually see it and take it in. Mm. Um, you may not, as a part of your general approach to leading, think of checking in with other people, understanding the state of their well-being, and being open and available to them for conversations that they may need to have, kind of like what you talked about with Paul. Right? That may not be a part of what you think leaders do. It's not a part of your job. And <clears throat> depending on the size of your organization and your direct line of leadership, you may not be able to do it in a wide-scale way with everyone. But I have seen leaders, even in very large organizations with huge uh, reporting structures, put an emphasis on this as their number one leadership priority, right? So what I, the communicating the strategic goals and everything else that we have to do comes second to making sure that I connect as a human being with the other human beings around me. And that means asking them how they are or knowing something about what's going on in their life and responding when something's off track, right? So when someone in their family is ill or when they wanted a big promotion and didn't get it, and they're feeling pretty devastated. Being able to just do a quick email or a quick reach out and acknowledging that you know that person and you see that they might be um, having a hard time right now, right? When that is high on the leadership priority list and it's put in service of all the other strategic aims that you have as a leader, that is a powerhouse leader. Right? I mean, that's the way you become beloved as a leader and, and the way you accomplish all those things you want to get done. Yes. Let's bring the conversation from the interpersonal level to the system level. How do we design systems that bring out compassion? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I, this is my kind of area, uh, my niche specialty within the right. overall um, so you're, you're about to geek out again, right? Yes, I'm, <laughs> you can see it coming, can't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Building up. <laughs> Getting to know me already. Um, so this part of the reason that this is my passion is because when you, I'm an organizational psychologist, right? Like part of what I think about is building great work structures and organizational structures so human beings can flourish within them. And when you think like this and you design for compassion, you create ways to make the experience of compassion much more likely to happen for lots and lots of people in your organization. So for leaders, I think this perspective is invaluable because even if you think interpersonally as a leader, um, trying to touch with compassion everyone you can you don't run across everyone in your organization every day likely right. right but you can touch them with compassion every single day by thinking like a designer of compassion so that's why i'm so passionate about this topic um, we have four flexible structures that are present in every organization that can be designed with more compassion. So I talk about the networks within an organization, right? The, the ways that people are arranged together in human clumps. Um, that's what I mean by a network. Uh, um, we talk about the roles of an organization. So you can think of that as your, or like basically your org chart, like the nodes on your org chart. You typically define them in terms of function, but Roles by their very nature determine what people think they're responsible for. So if you can infuse compassion into every single role de definition in your organization, you make it everyone's job. 
if you think about the routines of your organization, which everyone think are, you know, sounds so boring, but it is the, I mean, that's the lifeblood of lean, right? You think about routines and you drive out inefficiency. Well, think about routines and drive out pain, drive mm. out suffering. It's the same concept, but it's using the human lens on suffering and compassion to look at the repeatable things your organization does and say, how can we do them more compassionately every time we do them? And then the fourth one is culture. And I know that everyone, that's the one everyone talks about in relation to compassion because it has values embedded in it and it seems warm and fuzzy to talk about culture. So it seems like it should go with compassion. But in fact, it's the hardest to change quickly. Culture is organic. It, it evolves over time in response to a lot of these other structures so I think it's much faster payoff and more effective for leaders to think more about their roles and the routines of their organization and the networks they're building around them. And then let the culture, you know, emphasize the values, but let the culture follow along with those other changes. Okay, so I took notes and just so I, I want to make sure that I got it right and the listeners are, got it, are getting it right. So it's for you bring compassion systemically through one, um, the networks that you build. These are your internal networks within the company, right? Yes. And then you bring more compassion into the roles and functions of people that you would find in the org chart. Yes. And then in those everyday routines where pain might be present, I'm really curious about that one, Monica. Yeah. You know, routine. Um, that could be so many things. Could be task, tasks. Yeah. It yeah. could be, uh, it could be uh, uh, the way that you meet or the yes. way you structure your meetings or your huddles, um, you know. Yes. Uh, do you, any other examples about routines? Yeah. So routines I love talking about. People's eyes always glaze over. <laughs> but um, you're exactly right. The definition of a routine from organization science is a recurrent, interdependent, recognizable activity that has to happen in order for a task to get done. Right? So it's the way that organizations get stuff done. And so it does involve um, basically how do you search for people and select them into your organization? Once you select them in, how do you onboard them and socialize them to be a good member of your organization? As they're becoming a good member of their organization, how do you train them and equip them to do their job effectively? Um, as they're learning how to do their job effectively, how do you introduce them to how to meet with other people, right? How to participate in all the different social gatherings that, that work involves. Um, and then there are all kinds of, of routines that are um, customized to whatever kind of work that we do, right? So here's an example that will make this much more concrete than it sounds abstract when we talk about it this way is, uh, one of my favorite um, intervention studies that I've been involved in in the past couple of years involves, can you make shift changes more compassionate? For, so if you run an organization that has shift work in it, the most manufacturing plants do, um, every healthcare, like hospital level um, healthcare organization has multiple shift changes every day. What we know about shift changes is that as one shift goes off and the next one comes on, it's the place where mistakes are most likely. Oh. So the shift change is a place where you want to do really good handoffs that make your technical competence rise as a system. Right? Um, so that means the shift change often becomes very mechanical, right? I'm focused on the um, passing back and forth of information. And what we noticed when we were studying hospital shift changes is that the emphasis on safety and information exchange had become so pronounced that many nurses, when they were going through the shift change, didn't even look each other in the eye wow. um, or learn each other's name. They just focused on their electronic medical record and they started talking about patient information right away. And in most hospitals now, the electronic medical records are on wheels, 
right? So we would see nurses kind of wheel their re medical record up to another screen and um, the nurses couldn't even see each other. They were just talking behind computers and passing information back and forth quickly. And what was happening in the nurses' lives is that the shift change was rated as the highest pain point of their day. Wow. So in this project with the, with the organization, we said, give us the highest pain points. Let us understand what's going on there. And let's see if we can make that address that pain with more compassion. And so we studied the shift change. We saw what was going on inside this routine. And then we created a way for nurses to have lunchtime dialogues, which were very short. But in the dialogue, they simply talked about the fact that the shift change was happening this way. And we asked them to identify one thing that would make it more compassionate for themselves or for the other nurse or for the patient. And we asked them to commit to that one thing for a couple of weeks, and then we would check back with them. These were often small things that are completely within the purview of each individual nurse to do. And over the course of four weeks, we were able to see a very significant change in nurses' level of sense of well-being and satisfaction with their work by making the shift change less painful. Mm, I love it. That, well, yeah, another great example of how to alleviate suffering through compassion. Um, chapter 13 of your book is about overcoming obstacles to compassion at work. Uh, for the sake of time, can you give us one, maybe one top example? What's a really common obstacle that you've seen? Yeah, I want to talk about uh, sort of going back to what I said about the misperceptions and biases of compassion. Yeah. I want to talk about the top obstacle to compassion interpersonally being fear. Yeah. And um, there's a great researcher, Paul Gilbert, in the UK, who's made a scale of fear of compassion. And researchers are now measuring this, and it's very widespread. So we fear giving compassion because we will seem weak. Um, and we fear receiving compassion because we fear that other people will see will take advantage of us. If if we seem like we need their compassion, then they will take advantage of us in other ways. So whether you're on the giving or the receiving end of compassion, fear plays a role here. And it's the primary obstacle to compassion at work because if we're afraid of compassion and we, we don't, no, no one ever in a workplace wants to look weak and get taken advantage of, right? That's just, right, when you're talking about your your livelihood, those are things you don't want to have happen. So if those are associated with compassion right out of the gate, then we aren't going to notice suffering. We aren't going to think it's worth our time or relevant to our work. We aren't going to feel empathy for it because it shouldn't be in work anyway, right? And so we're not going to act with compassion. So the fact that we so fear compassion and we associate it with weakness and being taken advantage of means none of the four steps of compassion are likely to take place in our organization. Mm. This uh, dovetails really well into um, this next segment that we have, which is around fear and love. And, um, you know, here we are in 2020 and and yet uh, man, uh, uh, businesses and workplaces are still managed through fear and control. Um, tell us why you think that is the case. Why, why do people still lead through fear when the evidence is so clear that the principles that we are, we've been talking about, love, care, compassion, leads to high performance? It's such a good question. It's so hard as a scholar to answer a question like that because <laughs> there are so many answers. But <laughs> I want to go there. Um, if you ever studied like organization studies or org psych 101, there's a theory called theory X and theory Y. Do you remember that? Of course. And theory X is that people are good and trustworthy. And theory Y is that people are going to, take advantage of you and they're lazy and right that and and so if you're if you're a theory x leader you build an organization that is built on one set of assumptions about people and if you're a theory y leader you're you are building on a different set of assumptions i think that 
part of the reason fear be remains so widespread and command and control structures remain kind of people's go-to way of thinking about how organizations operate is partly because inside American or Western capitalism, we have a really strong theory why taken for granted, right? Like built into the structure of the whole economic system itself is this deep assumption that you are challenging, that I am challenging, right? So many of us are challenging, but it's built in there so deep that people can't be trusted, that if you give an inch, they will take a mile, that if everyone is out for their own self-interest, and so if you don't have rigorous control structures, people are, you know, everything is going to go to hell. And um, I think that, you know, without vilifying anyone, right? if you grow up inside that system and you become a leader inside the economic structures that govern all of our lives, you very likely had to internalize that assumption in order to get ahead and to make it to where you are. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to ask you to take off the scholar hat for a second, <laughs> if that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> and you may have answered the question, but I'm, 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 I'm looking for a short, succinct answer for the leader listening right now. Yeah. Is there a first step to switch from fear to compassion as a leader? Yes. Just before you step over the threshold of every single meeting or conversation you have, say to yourself, there's always pain in the room. Yep. Yep. That's good, Monica. Monica, it's been a fascinating conversation and we bring it home with two final questions. Personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like us to know? What's tugging at my heart right now is the emerging dialogue happening all around the world about how people will go back to workplaces after all of us have experienced these work at home or shelter at home times. And just the tenderness and the fragility of all of our health and all of our well being, and how much it's entrusted to the organizations that we work in to do policies wisely that help us stay well. And when I see media reports of organizations that seem like they're endangering people in unnecessary ways, that's really pulling at my heartstrings. Thank you for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that. And you wrap up this conversation your way with one final thing, anything that is that you can have a takeaway from this or just one final comment that we can take with us to make a difference in our lives. What would that be? Well, when we first started on the shelter at home work, my colleagues at the University of Michigan and I got invited to create something that's called a teach out. It's like a 21st century version of the teach-in. <laughs> so it happens online in a massive kind of um, open online course format. And we created a teach-out with wisdom from all kinds of scholars in our domain about how to thrive in trying times. And that teach-out is now up online and available free and open to anyone in the world who would want to see three-minute bits of wisdom about thriving in trying times from scholars who study this stuff. And they're, they're like you are pushing us to do. They're short and they're very practical and they have lots of good takeaways. And so you can go to futurelearn.com or coursera.com and create a free account on those platforms and search for Thrive in Trying Times. And you'll find scholars from this network that I'm a part of who study this stuff for a living, offering up their best ideas about how to handle um, now and the going back to work time with more possibilities for thriving. Fantastic. She is the Honorable Dr. Monica Warline, and please pick up a copy of her book, which is again called Awakening Compassion at Work, The Quiet Power That Elevates People. 
and organizations, co-authored by her colleague, Jane E. Dutton. Check it out. Monica, finally, if people want to get in touch with you uh, and learn more about you, where can they go? CompassionLab.com or um, the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research at Stanford University, also known as CARE. And finally, the Center for Positive Organizations at the University of Michigan. Those are my home bases. It's been a pleasure. We got to do it again. Thanks so much. And thanks for geeking out on us. Yeah, I'd love to come back if you can (laughs) take my geeking out. (laughs) One of the things that's took out for me is something I've seen in my coaching and consulting sessions with clients. Leaders always perceive themselves to be more of something, in this case, more compassionate. But when I start to dig down and do my surveys and interviews with individual contributors, I hear the opposite. So there's a perception gap, and Monica confirmed this. Leaders see themselves as more compassionate than they really are, or more compassionate than their people see them. So what do you do? You increase your self-awareness. That means checking in with your people. Get to know them on a personal basis. Find out what's going on in their lives. Understand the state of their well-being. And in Monica's own words, be open and available to them for conversations they may need to have. So you're probably going, yeah, Marcel, but you know, who's got time for that? I manage a hundred people. Okay. I get it. But to Monica's point, and I've seen this as well. So please understand what I'm about to say here is based on fact. Leaders that separate themselves from all the rest will make this their number one priority. Monica said it. It's for you to connect as a human being to other human beings. When you do that, know that the business, the strategy, the planning, and your outcomes are going to take care of itself. Thanks for listening, Love and Action Nation. If you've enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how you felt about it. And if you want to listen to any previous episode, Visit my website, marcelschwantes.com, and click on the Love in Action podcast tab. Today's episode was produced by One Stone Creative. Check them out at onestonecreative.net. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode of the Love in Action podcast, leave me a message on my contact page at marcelschwantes.com. Until next time, don't forget, Love in Action is what will truly Set your leadership apart. Try it and be convinced. Hey, Love and Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, Let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.